you suffer from numbness, tingling, burning, or pain in your feet and legs? It could be caused by something as simple and common as a B1 deficiency. This is Dr. Ronald Hoppen with a solution for low B1, Zobria by Realm Labs. Zobria is a safe, effective, and clinically proven nutritional supplement containing a high-potency bioactive form of vitamin B1, which has been shown to reverse symptoms caused by low B1 with no side effects. Low B1 causes your nerve cells to stop functioning properly, resulting in numbness, tingling, burning, and pain in the feet and legs. It may also contribute to forgetfulness, loss of mental focus, fatigue, and loss of appetite. Restoring proper B1 levels has been shown to improve the functioning of these nerve cells. You can get Zobria risk-free by going to Z-O-B-R-I-A.com. That's Zobria.com and get 20% off with coupon code Hoffman at checkout. This offer is only available to Intelligent Medicine listeners. That's Zobria.com. Vitamin B1 perfected. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Today's subject is, well, it's the meat controversy. Is meat good for you? Is it harmful? Today, we're going to talk to uh, the author of a wonderful book entitled Defending Beef, the Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat. Yeah, for meat, not against meat. Uh, this is not uh, a vegan diatribe against uh, the consumption of animal protein. It's actually a pro-meat book. <laughs> what a difference. And uh, this is actually the second time that I've interviewed uh, the author of this book, Nicolette Hahn Nyman, N-I-M-A-N, uh, about this book. This book uh, came out originally in 2014, but there's a brand new revised and expanded edition that just came out this year. It's a magnificent piece of work, uh, which uh, is really uh, methodical and scientific. Uh, and that reflects the background of today's guest. Uh, she's originally trained in biology, but she's also an environmental lawyer. And uh, she's going to tell us how it came to be. Uh, originally, uh, someone who was uh, an enthusiastic uh, vegetarian uh, as an environmental lawyer concerned about the depredations of uh, the livestock industry on the environment. Uh, but she came to take a more nuanced view of meat consumption, and that's reflected in this book. Nicolette, it's a pleasure having you back on Intelligent Medicine. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, so why is it that uh, you updated the book? Uh, what What's the difference between the 24 edi 2014 edition and the 2021 edition? Is there new information, new revelations, or a new perspective? Yes, I'd say all of those. Um, I... You know, I had, I had the book out there and had done a lot of writing and speaking kind of following up from it, but I kept thinking the book was almost more and more topical as time passed, but, and there's more and more research that's come out both on the health side and on the ecological side, especially with respect to climate change and soil carbon and that sort of thing. Um, and, um, and you know, the, but the book was kind of 
getting older just by virtue of, you know, having been written a few years ago. And the publisher asked me if I wanted a chance to update it, and I said yes. I jumped at the chance. And I thought it would just take me a few months because I thought, well, I'll just put in the new research. And then what happened was I started going through it paragraph by paragraph, line by line, and I realized that I actually wanted to rewrite the book pretty significantly because my perspective on the issue, while not radically different, is, it has evolved quite a bit. So, so I kind of went through and kind of recast the book to match my current thinking about these issues, and then I also added a lot more research um, on both the environmental side and on the health side. And indeed, you know, the diet wars, so-called, have only uh, escalated in the past uh, seven years or so uh, because yeah. uh, there's been a big push for uh, reducing our meat consumption, a lot of concern about uh, climate change, global warming. Uh, it's thought that uh, animal agriculture uh, is destroying the environment, is contributing to global warming. And these are issues that you tackle head on in the book uh, right. in, a very, in a very persuasive way. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, plus, you know, there's sort of a confluence between that and uh, the health rationale for not eating meat. Uh, which uh, I personally feel is sketchy, as do you. And uh, yeah. that's uh, the second part of the book, where you talk about uh, the science behind the claims that meat increases the risk for cardiovascular disease uh, and the now obsolete uh, science that suggests that it is a driver of cancer. Uh, you uh, do a pretty good breakdown of some of the evidence pro and con on that. Uh, so I would recommend it to our readers who are concerned about diet. But um, uh, uh, you haven't always been an ardent proponent of meat, right? Yes, that's true. I mean, I grew up in an omnivorous household. Both of my parents were, you know, devoted omnivores. <laughs> they were very interested in healthful eating and healthful living, so they always emphasized the importance to us of, uh, you know, eating a balanced diet and getting a lot of exercise. My mom had a big garden. We used to gather a lot of fruits and vegetables from our local farms in our community in, in southwestern Michigan where I grew up. Um, and But I do remember my parents, um, you know, in kind of in the 1970s, as I was, you know, around, you know, seven, eight years old or so, deciding that we shouldn't have butter in the house anymore because, you know, butter was going to contribute to heart disease. And so I remember them shifting to, you know, mozzola margarine. <laughs> so yeah, they had a was, few that ideas trend, that I don't, right? yeah, I don't, yeah, exactly. They kind of bought into, you know, a lot of the mainstream thinking about that. But they were very health focused. So what they did, you know, sort of teach all of us is that, you know, there's a strong connection between what you eat and how you live and your health, you know, immediately and in the long term. So I think they instilled in my siblings and me, you know, a good habits of being concerned about that. And I, in college, kind of partly because I'd been, you know, reared with this background of, you know, really worrying about health and diet, um, but I was already quite involved in environmental causes and and I was majoring in biology, as you mentioned in the introduction, in college. And it just seemed to me that the right thing to do, if you were someone who cared about the environment and also concerned about your own health, to give up, especially beef, 
you know, I remember very distinctly that that was the first meat that I gave up because that seemed to me the most troubling of all the meats. You know, it had the largest ecological footprint and so forth from what I was hearing. And I, in fact, I even remember, I have a sort of vivid recollection of going to a uh, an environmental meeting and there were pamphlets saying that this was beef was the primary driver of the deforestation of the Amazon. And, um, and these were the kinds of things that were influencing me. So in freshman year of college, I decided to stop eating originally beef, and then I stopped eating all meat a few months after that. And I continued to do that for quite a few years. And when I was hired by Bobby Kennedy Jr. to work for the Waterkeeper Alliance in New York, um, I had been a vegetarian for over 10 years. He asked me to work on issues related to the meat industry because he was concerned about environmental problems being caused by large concentrated animal operations. And I sort of felt like this was going to just reinforce everything I already knew. You know, it's kind of in line with what I was already thinking. And But what happened was the journey led me down a kind of a different pathway because I started to really look closely at meat production and its impacts and, and the very different impacts of different types of approaches. And through that job, that's how I met Bill Nyman, my husband of today. You know, we just had our 18th wedding anniversary a couple of days ago. Um, so we've been together for quite a while now. But at that time, he was the leader of um, a group called Nyman Ranch. He was the founder and the CEO of the company. And that was a collection of uh, farmers from around the country that were all attempting to raise uh, meat to a very high standard. So follow, you know, really careful um, environmental and animal welfare policies and and, uh, and practices. And uh, it was really through working with those farmers and ranchers that I started thinking this distinction was very important. So you came away and, with a little more nuanced view of the, uh, of the meat industry, uh, you know, discovering that uh, there may be uh, – more regenerative, uh, sustainable ways of doing agriculture. Yeah, well, it was really the beginning of my understanding. You know, it's been, I married Bill, uh, you know, 18 years ago and has li have lived on our ranch ever since we got married, and that's in California, in Northern California. And so I've had the opportunity both on our ranch and on a lot of other farms and ranches that I've visited over the last couple decades now um, to see tremendously different impacts when, you know, when the practices are done well. And so, um, you know, it's kind of this, uh, this slogan that a friend of mine came up with that just, just, just summarizes everything I've which is that it's not the cow, it's the how, you know, and that is really the, sort of the crux of what I now believe and the message that I'm trying to constantly, you know, forward in all my, you know, talks and all my writings, because there's so much oversimplification. You know, we all, you know, live in this age where we're very busy, we were bombarded by information, and we kind of want simple, simple solutions, we want simple explanations of problems, and then we want to be told what to do to, you know, to, how do we navigate this problem simply, and diet, of course, it, you know, there's so much conflicting information. And one of the things I've noticed that's been most alarming is I've seen um, entities uh, like the Harvard School of Public Health, for example, in their newsletter, they'll talk about something to do with meat and they'll just say in passing, like, as we all know, this is bad for the environment, you know, and it's mm -hmm. like, geez, you're, you know, they're not even in their own realm of expertise. It's like, this is something we all know. And it's like, no, we really don't know that, you know, and, and I've, you know, of course, I'm communicating regularly with those types of groups and saying it's very important to make the distinctions because what I, you know, what I learned first at that job at Waterkeeper as an environmental lawyer, but then more and more 
in my own work on ran- on our ranch and other ranches is that when you um, raise animals in a way that attempts to mimic natural systems, you not only don't have negative effects, you actually have tremendous positive effects. So there's a lot of talk in the environmental community about mitigation, you know, mitigation of negative effects from, you know, whatever human activity, but especially when you're talking about meat, the meat industry, there's always this reference to mitigating the harms. And what I keep trying to get people to think is we're not even really talking about mitigation. When you're raising animals well, Mm -hmm. they're not a negative uh, force that needs to be mitigated. They're a positive and necessary force Mm -hmm. to make, you know, whatever food system you have, you know, either on a particular farm or ranch, or when you're talking about globally, they really add things that we can't, that we don't have without them. So they have a positive ecological effect in a lot of different ways. And I can, you know, talk about the specifics for hours, obviously, so I'm happy to go into that. But that's kind of the bottom line of it. And, you know, you make the point, and it's an interesting point, is that uh, before the advent of uh, human hunters, you know, which was perhaps, uh, you know, a couple of hundred thousand years ago, uh, the, yeah. uh, the prairies of Europe and forested areas, in fact, uh, but, you know, mostly the prairies, the huge prairies of, uh, of uh, landlocked America uh, were inhabited by large-bodied herbivores, millions and perhaps, you know, tens of millions of them uh, grazing on the vegetation and depositing their wastes on the earth in a kind of stable ecosystem. And then uh, we began to, uh, actually, we made a lot of these species extinct. Uh, The uh, Native Americans uh, preserve the buffalo as a source of sustenance, uh, of which there were millions, and they were almost almost uh, annihilated with the onslaught of uh, the whites from uh, in the in the eighteenth uh, century and nineteenth century, uh, and and so that there is sort of a, a natural precedent for uh, having a lot of grazing animals, isn't there? Yeah, in fact, I think it's very important for people to understand that the earth co-evolved with these huge herds. Because when you're thinking about how we try to, uh, you know, repair the damage that humans have done to the earth, which is, you know, is, is enormous, you know. And I mean, even if you don't talk about climate change, which is kind of a looming issue most people are thinking about these days, just thinking about soil and about the the abundance of it and the life that should be in soil. You know, we've lost this enormous quantity of soil through agricultural practices, especially through plowing, you know, even when we started with very primitive plowing techniques, but especially nowadays with these huge, you know, giant tractors and massive fields where we have, you know, these enormous machines. And then uh, the application of chemicals as well in agriculture has been tremendously detrimental in terms of the health and the life that should be in a soil. And that is really kind of the key to having truly regenerative systems. So the, the humans have done this sort of massive damage to the earth. But what's fascinating is if you think, okay, how do we repair this, you know, and on a global scale and then on a, you know, site-specific scale? And what, you know, what more and more my research has convinced me of and what I've seen as well with my own eyes 
is that when you try to, um, as you know, the Australian author Charles Massey says, understand the landscape function of a place, and you try to restore that and try to um, think what is int- how is this landscape supposed to function, and you try to figure out how to make that happen, it turns out animals are a really essential part of that. And it's because they co-evolved with the earth. They co-evolved with the evolution of grasses. They co-evolved with the evolution of these um, large open areas on the earth. You know, we, we often think of the sort of pre-human earth as being sort of um, forested, you know, from from one sea to the other. And there were a lot of forested areas and there have been, you know, parts of the earth that humans have taken the trees down on. There's no doubt about that. But there was also, long before humans came about, for tens of millions of years, there were large herds of grazing herbivores and they helped to create and to maintain the existence of these large open spaces in vast stretches of the earth on the globe. So when we think about what does the earth need and how is it supposed to function, um, it's very clear that that large grazing animal and all of the things that it does ecologically is very important. And human activity, as well as other forces, like the naturally changing climate that happened over, you know, in the, during the ice age and post ice age, et cetera, et cetera, that, uh, those forces dramatically reduced the, the numbers of those large grazing animals and the impact that they we're having. And so part of what I'm arguing and what uh, people like the wildlife ecologist Alan Savory are arguing is that if you want to understand how the earth is meant to function, you have to look at this longer arc of history. And when you do that, you understand that you have to have these grazing animals. And so we have to use the domesticated grazing animals as a proxy for those disappeared wild grazing animals. We still have, you know, some bison in North America. We still have some caribou in the Arctic. We still have a fair, fairly large numbers of, you know, Cape Buffalo in the Serengeti. There are areas on the globe where you still have some of these big herds. But they're really just remnants of what was once on the earth. And so when you think about the numbers of cattle, and other domesticated large grazing animals that are on the earth, it's still quite quite a bit smaller than what is believed to have been here one day in, in, in terms of the wild grazing animals. And so that's part of what, you know, I'm trying to point out in the book is that people sometimes think that we have these huge herds of cattle that are, you know, overwhelming the earth. Well, it really isn't true. If you think about the long history of the earth, we've had these big grazing animals They've played a very important ecological role. And so the key, again, is the how. If we're managing those animals well, and we manage them in such a way that they can have a similar impact to the impact that these large disappeared wild herds once had, that actually helps the earth to come back into balance rather than pushing it further toward the brink, which is what the sort of popular narrative is right now. Okay, folks, at this point, let's pause and allow one of our sponsors an opportunity to share this vital message with you. Naturally occurring black pigments in vegetables, spices, and seeds have been found to have powerful anti-inflammatory effects. Hi, this is Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and I'm excited about what I think may be the next big thing in anti-inflammatory supplements, a brand new, all-natural daily preventative against a host of possible inflammatory issues. Black for Health Liquid Extract from Future Farm Botanicals. Black for Health combines four plant-based foods, black garlic, black radish root, black cumin seed, 
and black peppercorn containing high levels of body-ready healing botanicals. Black for Health supports your liver, skin, cholesterol, blood pressure, and weight management, circulation, and immunity. It's a tasty supplement with liposome complex for optimal absorption. For more information or to order, call 888-841-7216, 888-841-7216, or go to myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. That's myfuture. Farm, P-H-A-R-M, myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman, myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. Thanks for listening and thanks for supporting our sponsors. They're what make Intelligent Medicine a continuing free resource to you. And now back to today's guest, Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, author of Defending Beef. Well, let's tackle some uh, meat myths, okay? Uh, yep. You know, we talked about how meat production may actually not be harmful to the environment. Um, among the meat myths are that the methane that uh, is released in, and not in cow farts, because they often talk about cow, cow farts. It actually turns out that most of the methane that's excreted by uh, large grazing animals uh, comes out in the form of burps, right? That's but right. That, yep. that, that <laughs> methane is a significant contributor to uh, climate change, global warming, the greenhouse gases. Yeah, I've even encountered, I mean, multiple times I've had people say to me, well, I really don't eat beef anymore because of the methane issue. And that's part of the reason in this new edition of the book, I spend a great deal of time on the methane question. I really get deeply into the science on it, trying to <laughs> try not to make it boring, but it's kind of important to get into the weeds on that issue because there's so much misunderstanding of it. And interestingly, that's one of those things where more and more research has come out in very recent years. So it was really important for me to add a lot to the book about methane. Um, there are many things that can be said about it, and I go into detail in the book, but the sort of um, summary bullet points are this. First of all, um, the, the, the grazing animals that we were just talking about, the large grazing animals that once covered much of the earth, they, they, most of these were ruminant animals that produced methane. So there's kind of been this large um, portion of methane that was produced by large grazing animals almost sort of from the beginning of the Earth's history. You know, I mean, for tens of millions of years, let's put it that way. And so one thing that's important to note is that the grazing animals that are there now, the domesticated grazing animals, are not adding a new amount of methane. They're sort of uh, maintaining a historic load. In fact, it's probably dropped down quite a bit because we have fewer domesticated grazing animals. But more importantly, the, the methane... Uh, question overall has been really misunderstood by the fact that they've created this sort of carbon equivalent. You talk about carbon dioxide having a certain mm -hmm. amount of impact, and you talk about methane having a certain uh, amount of impact, and you sort of equate them in a math mathematical way. You know, you say um, one molecule of methane equals, you know, 23 molecules of car carbon dioxide or whatever you want to make it. And the, that's just basically false. And this is something that I learned about from Dr. Miles Allen, who is is not only a physicist at Oxford University and an expert on methane, but he was actually on the Intergovernmental Panel um, for Climate Change's scientific committee for several years. And he has worked, you know, very directly on the international policy on climate change. And I have um, seen him talk a number of times. I've seen him on, on YouTube, and I met him and spoke with him directly in person in England 
a couple of years ago. And I learned from him that this idea of equating methane and carbon dioxide is just simply false in the real world. As he said to me, it kind of makes sense on paper, but it really doesn't work like that in the real world. The reason is because carbon dioxide, whether it's emitted from a car or some other source, is what they call a stock gas. The, The emission goes basically into the atmosphere and it essentially stays there for hundreds of thousands of years. So from the perspective of how we're thinking about these questions, it's essentially there forever. It just builds up. This is not what happens with methane. Methane is a very different kind of gas and is very short-lived. And it actually breaks down around 10 years, at around 10 years. So it has a whole different way of functioning in the environment. And when you're calculating how much methane something is causing and what what its uh, global warming effect is, it should be a completely different approach, according to Dr. Allen. And he says that really we just can't use the modern metrics at all. And he's actually created a totally different metric. And I give an example in the book that shows that if you do that, if you use the metric that he says is more accurate of the actual science in the real world, it shows that you don't have, you can't attribute any global warming to the cattle herd at all unless it's actually increasing in size. And in fact, he shows that, you know, there's this kind of historic load that you could attribute to um, to the grazing animals. And then unless you had significant increases, you really shouldn't be attributing any global warming impact to them at all, which is very, you know, it's very fascinating to understand the issue in a different way. And that's, that's the real science of it. Um, I talk about a lot of other aspects of it and just the fact that, um, you know, you have um, fossil fuel, the fossil fuel industry emitting enormous amounts of methane. In fact, I've just posted a few things on Facebook in the last couple of weeks, new, uh, new documents and reports that have just been produced measuring the methane leaks from various natural gas production facilities around the world. And there were massive amounts. None of this is currently being measured or um, in any way regulated. So, you know, the bottom line is focusing on cattle is really a, a red herring. And I go through, you know, a lot of detail on this in the book, like I said, but that's kind of the bottom line. It's not really something that is a major problem. There are also good ways to mitigate it that, that, that are being studied around the, around the world at agricultural universities. And when you're really looking at regenerative systems, uh, the methane problem is dramatically less because of the fact that you have healthy soil bacteria, which actually will consume more of the methane as they do in any ecosystem. There's always kind of a balancing, you know, there's something that causes something, there's something that consumes that thing. So, you know, when cattle are viewed from a bigger picture um, perspective, I think the methane issue almost totally goes away. It's not that it's not that it's totally untrue. It's that it's been vastly overblown and misunderstood. So another myth is that, uh, and this is part of the narrative, was that meat and full fat dairy used to be relatively scarce. That uh, you know they were you know an accoutrement to the diet on a small. Uh, subsistence farms where people mostly ate uh, fruits and vegetables. Uh, but now with modern industrialized processes and prosperity, uh, we're eating so much more meat. It's unnatural. Yeah. yeah. 
And and just that whole question of how much, uh, you know, animal fat we're consuming, I think people do generally tend to think that. They think that that number has just gone up and up and up. And what I did for the original book and also refreshed it for this newer book is I went back and looked at the original records that have been kept, you know, for the last, you know, 150 years about what's being produced and what's being consumed in the United States. And it's very, very clear when you look at that, that we're actually um, consuming quite a bit less of, you know, just about everything that, you know, would have been blamed for, you know, heart disease and things like butter, whole milk, uh, um, red meat, you know, beef, pork, um, whole eggs, all of these things have gone down. Our consumption of it has actually gone down. And in, in, in the last couple of decades, we've actually dramatically reduced our red meat consumption in the United States and in, in other industrialized countries as well. It's gone down by about 25% in the last couple of decades in the U.S. But, but interestingly, what's been replacing it is things that are, you know, now beginning to be scrutinized a lot more heavily, such as, I mean, all these kind of industrial produced seed-based oils, things like uh, corn oil and soy oil, and also, of course, there's the whole question of um, palm oil and other other types of fats that we've we've replaced the animal fats with. But when you just look at the demographic data, the animal fat consumption and the total uh, you know consumption of meat, red meat in particular, has not been increasing. It's generally been decreasing. Okay, our, our regular listeners know that we divide our podcast into two parts. In part two, we're going to tackle some more meat myths. The book is Defending Beef, the Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat. Our guest is Nicolet Han Nyman, and uh, we've got more to discuss in part two, so stay with us. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.